0: There was a deep magic in Narnia, a magic that goes back to the beginning of time, a deep magic that the White Witch claimed Aslan and the children had infringed upon when they rescued Edmund from her clutches. In C.S. Lewis's beloved fantasy novel, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, four children stumble upon a hidden world called Narnia. After walking through a magical wardrobe, the children quickly learn that an evil and powerful witch has seized control of Narnia and proclaimed herself queen. And unbeknownst to the children, their arrival is an answer to prophecy, a prophecy that foretold the undoing of the white witch's power over Narnia and the return of its rightful ruler Aslan. One of the children, named Edmund, ends up conspiring with the queen against his three siblings. She plots to kill the children to prevent the prophecy from coming true, and she had hoped to use naive Edmund against his brother and sisters, luring them to their doom. However, Edmund fails to bring his siblings to her, so she imprisons him. And for the time being, Edmund's brother and sisters are able to elude the wicked queen. And while on the run, Peter, Susan, and Lucy encounter Aslan, a majestic, good lion who is seeking to reclaim his kingdom. Aslan graciously heads up a successful rescue operation for Edmund, but after he is saved from the clutches of the White Witch, she confronts Aslan concerning the traitor that he is harboring. She seeks to remind Aslan of the deep magic, a magic that goes back to the beginning of time, the very moral order of Narnia. She tells Aslan, you at least know the magic with the emperor put into Narnia at the very beginning. You know that every traitor belongs to me as my lawful prey and that every treachery I have the right to kill. And so, said the white witch, now pointing at Edmund, that human creature is mine. His life is forfeit to me. His blood is mine. Aslan cannot refute the queen's claims. There is indeed a moral order that holds Narnia together, a deep magic that could not simply be waved aside. He knows, says the white witch gloating, that unless I have blood, as the law says, all Narnia will be overturned and perish in fire and water. Edmund had unknowingly and forfeited his life to the evil queen when he betrayed his brother and sister's And this deep magic cannot easily be retracted. Yet Aslan loves Edmund. Despite his faults and flaws, Edmund has previously expressed remorse for his actions both, both to Aslan and to his siblings. And so Aslan asks for a private audience with the White Witch in the tent. And then after a few uneasy moments, they emerge with a compromise, a deal. The queen has renounced her claim on Edmund, however, in exchange for someone else's life. Little do the children realize Aslan has agreed to offer himself in Edmund's place. The white witch thinks she has hit the jackpot. Since the great lion, the rival ruler of Narnia, is obviously a much greater prize than any son of Adam, she thinks killing Aslan will allow her to finally rule Narnia unopposed. So she accepts Aslan's proposal. Later that night, Aslan sneaks away to the queen's forces, encamped on what is known as the hill of the stone table. And listen to how Lewis describes the scene. A great crowd of people were standing all around the stone table, and though the moon was shining, many of them carried torches, which burned with evil-looking red flames and black smoke. But each perp- but such people, ogres with monstrous teeth and wolves and bull-headed men, spirits of evil trees and poisonous monsters, and other creatures whom I won't describe, because if I did, the grown-ups would probably not let you read this book. Right in the middle, standing on the stone table, was the witch herself. The fool, she cried, as Aslan drew closer. The fool has come. Bind him fast. Aslan put up no resistance. He did not fight back, attack, or defend himself. He made no noise when his enemies bound him and dragged him to the stone table. Yet the humiliation did not then there. The witch then ordered Aslan's lion mane be shaved and a muzzle put on his face. Only then was he properly prepared for execution. Aslan lay feeble and humiliated on the stone table, and the witch prepares her knife and looms over him. But before killing him, she whispers something in his ear, and now who has won? fool? Did you think that by all of this you would have saved the human traitor? Now I will kill you instead of him, and so the deep magic will be appeased. But when you are dead, what will prevent me from killing him as well? And who will take him out of my hand then? Understand that you have given me Narnia forever. You have lost your own life, and you have not saved his. In this knowledge, despair and die. And with that final word, the white witch plunged her knife into the lion, and Aslan was killed, then and there on the stone table, to the glee and jubilation of the witch's forces, and to the horror of Lucy and Susan spying from afar. (coughs) Narnia's deep magic had been appeased, Edmund had been saved, but the king was now After her victory on the stone table, the witch's forces leave. And seeing the coast is clear, Susan and Lucy venture up closer to Aslan's shaven, muzzled corpse, still in shock and sadness for what transpired that night. The morning was beginning to dawn, and when the sisters had their back turned, they heard what Lewis said behind them, a loud noise, a great cracking, deafening noise, as if a giant had broken the giant's plate. Lewis says that the girls were fearing that the queen's forces had returned. And so the girls rushed to prevent further humiliation to Aslan. But when they returned to the stone table, they discovered that it has been broken into two pieces by a giant crack that run, ran down from end to end. But Aslan's body was missing. It had disappeared. Susan asks, what does it mean? Is it magic and a great voice behind their backs said yes it is more magic and to their surprise shining in the sunrise larger than they had seen him before stood aslan alive alive and well and the girls rushed to hug him overjoyed at the sight of him no longer being dead but what does this mean asked susan it's a good question Aslan says it means that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but she could have looked—if she could have looked a little bit further back, before time dawned—she would have known that when a willing victim who has committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack, and death itself would start working backwards. The queen had been duped by her own lust for power, and Narnia's king was not dead, but alive. What a plot twist. Don't you love a good plot twist? When something happens in the story that you did not expect. But can I tell you another plot twist? Lewis isn't very original. (laughs) He didn't come up with this plot twist. If you've ever read this beloved children's story, you should know that Lewis was plagiarizing. And deliberately so, mind you. He was inspired by another story. He wasn't creative enough to write this epic plot twist. He was inspired by someone else's plot twist because only God would be capable of such a twist ending. Can I share with you this morning Lewis's source material? Can I share with you where he came up with this idea? And I warn you that up front, it may sound a bit strange. When we talk about Jesus on the cross like this, we're actually talking about how for the first thousand years, the early church and the early church fathers spoke of not only the crucifixion, but also Jesus' incarnation, his crucifixion, and Easter all tied into one. We don't talk like they do, but sometimes we sing like they do. Sometimes our imaginations are the same as theirs. Can I share with you how they understood the cross? For nearly the first thousand years of Christianity, many held an understanding that the cross, on the cross, Jesus paid a ransom for humanity. They believed when humanity fell into sin, when our earliest human parents listened to the serpent, his lies crept into our hearts and as a result adam and eve unwittingly but freely enslaved themselves and the entire human race to sin's power and as a result experienced the consequence of sin which is death all humanity was now in bondage or captivity to sin and for the earliest christians this equated or essentially meant that all of humankind was now in servitude to dark forces, and to the ringleader, the devil, as they understood that sin meant that being under his control and influence. 1 John 3.8 says, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. They understood that because of humanity's treason against God, we could no longer belong to God, but that we were legally bound to someone else. All of humankind, God's prized creatures, were now under the domain of the serpent. We were under his control, under his authority. We were the devil's property, or more like the devil's hostages. We were imprisoned by him. And so now to free humanity from our bondage to the devil, God was not going to play the game the way the devil had. He wasn't going to stoop to his level. He wasn't going to resort to using the enemy's technique and steal humanity back, though he was completely capable of doing it. But rather, God formulated a plot of sorts. And this is what the early church fathers believed. God was going to deceive the deceiver. And rescue humanity. Or more like the deceiver was going to deceive himself. God was going to risk his king for the sake of some lowly pawns. And this all hinged upon a transaction or a deal between himself and the devil. And again, in the minds of early Christians, the two struck a deal to relinquish the devil's claims on us. The payment of the sinless soul of Jesus in exchange for all humankind. 1 Timothy 2 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. God was willing to pay a price for humanity. God was willing to buy back humanity who betrayed him in that garden. God was willing to pay whatever the cost to redeem prisoners that were captive to sin and to the evil one. Jesus will tell his disciples, for even the Son of Man came not to serve but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus knew that his life, his entire life, not just what happened on Good Friday and Easter, but his entire life would be a worthy payment to satisfy the devil's price. And so they believed that on Calvaria, Latin for Galgatha, Aramaic for the place of the skull, a hostage exchange took place. Jesus Christ, for the entire human race. An opportunity the devil could not resist, but one God was banking on. The devil thought he hit the jackpot. God sacrificed his king, and by all accounts, it would seem checkmate in Satan's favor. However, this was going all according to God's plan. God knew Satan better than Satan knew himself. God knew Satan's own pride and greed, the same pride and greed that got him kicked out of heaven in the first place would prevent Satan from seeing the soul of Jesus, would would prevent him from seeing the soul of Jesus for what it truly was that he would think him more valuable than the souls of captives, but he would miss something very important about who Jesus was. He thought Jesus was vulnerable to attack and destruction by being found as a mortal human, but boy, was he in for a surprise. The deceiver was deceived, but more like the deceiver deceived himself. God outsmarted the devil. The devil thought he could kill Jesus and claim his soul, but he quickly discovered that would be impossible. He thought Jesus was a vulnerable target, but he miscalculated the depths God would go to rescue humanity, that the entire Godhead dwelled inside the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the incarnate Son of God, and the devil had gotten more than he bargained for. St. Gregory of Nicaea, He's a 4th century theologian, and he described it this way. He said, The deity was hidden under the veil of our flesh, so that as a ravenous fish, the hook of the deity might be gulped down with the bait of the fish. I love how the early Christians talked. In a way, ancient Christians understood what happened on Calvary was like someone's going fishing. The bait was the humanity of the Son of God. The devil was the fish, and after he went after the bait, and when he swallowed it, he was caught on the hook. St. Augustine of Hippo, another 4th century theologian, said it this way, the Lord's cross was the devil's mousetrap. The bait which caught him was the death of our Lord. I love how they talk. The earliest Christians did not gloss over christ's death like we do rather they saw it as the ultimate humiliation of the devil and the triumph of christ the ultimate reversal in all of human history. When Jesus was brought down to the abode of the dead, or the Apostle's Creed says, hell, he descended into hell. Jesus traveled to the English translation of the Greek word Hades, which just means the abode of the dead, or simply the place where the dead go in the afterlife, which they believe the devil had authority over. When Satan brought Jesus down there, he didn't realize that God was incarnate in Jesus. In John's Gospel, it says Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and that's who Satan's just let into the doors of Hades. He finds that the enemy has entered the gate. Jesus was like a Trojan horse, and the Son of God is is incapable of staying there. Being fully God, the light of the world, he shone, shone brightly into the darkness of Hades. And they used this imagery that Jesus cannot be locked up, but instead, perhaps you've heard this language before, snatched the keys of death and Hades from the devil. Like someone who has a master key to the building or the key to the city, the devil had the keys to death and Hades, but Jesus easily snatched them from him. And then not only that, he bound the devil up himself instead and then released all the captives that were there, freeing humanity from our chains and bonds bondage to sin's power. Only then does Jesus waltz out of the tomb on Easter morning, keys of death and Hades in hand, to the shock of the women and to the humiliation of the devil. Jesus took what the devil meant for evil and used it for God. told you it was kind of weird, didn't I? <laughs> but like the white witch, Satan was duped. He was outsmarted by God. The deceiver was deceived by himself. Satan's own pride was his own undoing, his own hubris, his own folly. He thought he could overpower the Son of God, even in human form, but that was not the case. Hebrews 2, our scripture this morning says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil, and deliver all of those, though fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. That's why Jesus had to become fully God and fully human he had to take on our nature and take on a normal human death and since Jesus never sinned the consequences of death cannot touch him death is swallowed up in victory O oh, death where is your victory O oh, death where is your sting the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ therefore the earliest Christians did not view the cross as something shameful, but as something triumphant. The cross was not a defeat for Christ, rather it was a victory. Check and mate. Jesus paid our ransom. Jesus's death was satisfactory to buy us back from sin, but ultimately Jesus' resurrection severed the power of sin over us. The devil and the forces of darkness have no control over us. We are now, we no longer belong to them, but we belong to God's kingdom and can have relationship with God once again because of the cross. Jesus took the devil's tool for humiliation and death and turned it into a symbol. The Apostle Paul says it this way again in First Corinthians: for the word of the cross is folly for those who are perishing. But but to us who are being saved is the power of God. We today live in the aftermath of Christ's victory on Calvary. We live in the shadow of that old rugged cross. Maybe sometimes we need to think like our ancient ancestors did. I'm not saying that they're right. There's many theologians a thousand years later that would actually argue that they're wrong but I just think it was kind of cool to think like they did, to see the cross as a battle and a victory over the forces of evil. For some of you this morning, can I share with you the good news that Jesus has paid for your freedom from sin and death. He holds the keys now and he'll never let them go again. He has paid for your freedom from sin's power. All you have to do is walk out of that prison cell. Don't listen to the voices of the evil one enticing you to stay. You can leave captivity to sin and live the abundant life that God always intended for humanity. Jesus has made that possible. Maybe you need to hear that this morning. Or For some of you this morning, the devil and the forces of darkness want you to believe that the battle's not over yet, that the battle has not been won. In fact, they want to convince you that sin still has power over you. Can I tell you right now, don't believe the devil's propaganda that that you're still shackled to sin. Jesus has paid your ransom. Jesus has freed you from sin. Walk in freedom because of his of our living hope. Don't return to the prison cell that Jesus freed you from or reshackle yourself to the chains that Jesus broke. Jesus has paid for your release. Now be free and sin no more. Kind of cool, huh? I had no idea if this message was going to work or not. I just was thinking it was kind of interesting to think like they did. Maybe that will give us some courage and strengthen these trying times. That we see the dark forces that are at work in our world that maybe be controlling us we are free that Christ has won the battle I was watching a great uh, movie this week it was uh, about a prison break it was called the Shawshank Redemption maybe you've seen this movie Andy Dufresne is a prisoner there and he's there falsely but he's determined to escape and his friend Red has given up and uh, decided that there was no hope of escape and why even bother trying but Andy was different And with enough time and pressure, Red thought that's how he escaped. But the movie leads us to believe that it was hope. It was hope that he was able to escape. And at the end of the movie, there's this great line that Andy says to his friend Red in the letter. He says, remember, Red, hope is a good thing. Maybe the best of things. And no good thing ever dies. Jesus is our living hope. He never dies. He is ruling and reigning right now. He is victorious. No good things ever die.